Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Jana Levin, author of the book How the Universe Got Its Spots, Diary of a Finite Time in a Finite Space. Jana, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. Yeah. <laughs> Good to was, be here. Oh, thanks. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Well, I, uh, from a distance, could be described through my profession. I'm a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College of Columbia University, which I can presently see outside my window, which is nice. <laughs> um, it's not a long commute. And uh, I'm also uh, an editor-in-chief of a arts and culture magazine called Pioneer Works Broadcast, which is published out of the Art and Science Cultural Center in Brooklyn, Pioneer Works. So that's a fun dimension of uh, the kind of stuff I get to do. It's one I can definitely appreciate after having read your book is that it's you know, you have a very literary style. And, and I can and I can see that in, in, in some of the events that you describe, you, you definitely... I mean, it's so often to stereo- it's so easy to stereotype people you know who study a subject as being very narrowly focused. That if you're not talking about, say, you know, mathematical formulae or the you know archaeology of of, of ancient you know uh, Athens, that they don't that they can't you know find their their head from a hole in the ground. But but you had have you, you have a very wide ranging set of interests and and that 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 cross into so many disciplines. I, I thought it was very uh, it, it really added to uh, the book that you wrote. Well, I appreciate that so much. That really does mean the world to me. I, I very much um, am a fan, literary fan, and I've always uh, read tons of fiction. Um, I read much more fiction than nonfiction, and I really conceived of this book kind of as a literary experience, not as um, a scientific outreach. Um, And I felt that while there's a lot of science in it, and it can be quite challenging conceptually, that that really the literary form should be carrying the book um, and, and not just relying so heavily on the wow factor of the concepts. And that, I, I think, really adds to the book's accessibility. But you also do something in the book that is really at the forefront of it. And it, it is such a fascinating choice because it is so unique, which is you, it's a very personal one. It So many books about science, even ones that are very accessible, ultimately are about the information, about the office interpretation. But you do something that is very daring. Which is you 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 uh, you open up a window into your life, and you have this intertwining of the 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 personal with your profession. What led you to undertake that step, and how do you feel it it, it makes the material more accessible in terms of presenting it in a way that a more standard approach might not have? Yeah, the book was definitely um, experimental in that respect. I I feel as though there were layers of motivation for writing the book. One was just to describe uh, the investigation and the campaign to understand if the universe is infinite or finite, that very straightforward scientific ambition. But there was another very strong motivation, which was uh, to kind of... Uh, 
honor ideas and experiences, even if uh, we might never know the answer. And I, in the science books that I had read a lot of, even the great ones, and there are some wonderful ones, they have a kind of sense of the great scientist coming down from the mountain with a tablet and and kind of <laughs> you know, presenting the great world of discoveries. And and that's exciting. It is a great um, theme. It's a it's a great style. But I definitely didn't want to do that in this book. I was first of all very young when I wrote it. I was um, had just recently become a postdoc which means I had just finished my PhD and was um, beginning the sort of research scientist's life. And um, it's not, I, I wasn't Professor Emeritus, you know, coming down after a lifetime of a great career. That that wasn't my position. I didn't want to strike that voice. Um, and I felt very certain that I didn't want to write a book for some other. You know, I, I didn't want to write a book that's like, well, this isn't for me or this isn't for uh, my peers. This is for some other kind of an audience. And I really didn't want that. I wanted to write um, in a sense where I was leveling the, um, you know, the field between me and the and the reader. And so I thought to strike it as a series of letters, not many of which were never actually written or sent, but <laughs> that was the concept, um, you know, to my own mother as a kind of, here's a person I cannot condescend to, you know, here's a person it would be inappropriate for me to, you know, not be humble at my presentation of what I'm working on and, and to really strike a very, very personal tone. And so that's what motivated that decision, just to go all out and kind of embed the scientific thinking in the life in which it was thought. <laughs> um, and that's how it happened. I actually find your description uh, uh, very fascinating because as I read the book, there was an element of it that I also was intrigued by, which is as I'm reading it, you you periodically reference some of the scientific and, and mathematical giants of, 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 of the past. And I, it, I was reading it, I was thinking about how I got the impression from those passages of of you as a pardon the expression a novice scholar, you know, someone who was was still you know finding your footing in the profession, and and, and how you were measuring yourself up to these people, some of whom you know Pythagoras, uh, you know Albert Einstein, but also contemporary scholars who like uh, like your 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 dissertation advisor, you know, people who already had you know that those established professorships like were in positions similar yeah. to the ones that you now possess, and how you were getting a, you you're sort of measuring yourself in terms of coming to terms with with your field. It's it's like in one sense coming to terms with the universe, but you're also coming to terms with yourself in the profession. Yeah, um, definitely. I wanted to. Uh, portray the emotional difficulty of this discipline in a funny way. Um, I think that people who end up with a lifetime doing theoretical physics <laughs> or mathematical physics and cosmology, there is a part of your life that becomes isolated, where very, very, very few people understand what you're thinking about. Um, you have very few people to talk to, and very few people will read our papers. I mean, even some of the most successful papers, contemporary papers that are written, are read by maybe a few hundred people, or that's considered very that's considered a very broad distribution. So, so it can be quite isolating. 
And I think that there is um, a personal component to making that choice um, and not to pursue other uh, sort of benefits of a work life like larger salaries or greater recognition or um, greater flexibility. Um, academia can be incredibly inflexible in terms of where you go, where you research, where you live. You can't just drop a pin in the map and decide where you're going to live and find a job. That's just not how it works. So it's a, a very different structure to a life. And, um, and I wanted to convey that um, precarious um, sense of trying to belong and, and yet being lost in thoughts that are difficult to share. And I, I felt that that was also speaking to a side of the scientist's life and process that's rarely addressed. And I have to say, you succeed right out of the gate because your opening chapter, you're, you're literally describing a transition with your move from San Francisco to to England and how and how you then it, it, I was just you know impressed by how seamlessly you then start talking about science it's just it, it's it's almost like you know, one moment I'm, I'm reading about a yard sale and then the next moment I'm, I'm reading about you know the nature of the universe and, and it was just it, it, it kind of gets to how that, that that process you talk about that that isolation we, we it, physics is in so way so in many ways does seem so distant and abstract to us and yet I thought that the whole your whole approach showed it, it, the way you do those transitions it, it, there's this I, I was taking for this message that you know it, it, it's it's all around us and and, mm-hmm. and 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 that you know we, we we can't treat it as isolating and distant and and the province of a few people and, and a few hundred people that that read the papers but it's something that that is literally the the you know you know in this 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 broader context in which we live which we're only just beginning to understand hopefully yeah absolutely i i do think very much it's a glimpse into the life of a scientist and and that those transitions that you're describing, I think I started to realize, oh, this is working because that is how the mind works. That one minute you are in the yard sale and the next while there, you know, my mind drifts away to thinking about space. I mean, that, you know, it's, we're not that compartmentalized as we pretend. It's not as though I don't start thinking about physics until I walk into an office and it stops when I leave. That's just not... <laughs> That's not the the way our minds work. So it is integrated in the life of a scientist in their daily thoughts. And I also wanted to kind of convey how like the fabric of those daily thoughts is uh, altered by these ideas. And they really do become just very much part of uh, the the narrative that we construct of the world that we're in, the world that we perceive. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a little on that process by addressing some of those big conceptual questions you have in your book, and, and maybe about how that process of of of, of the, the your, your your daily life, how how it leads you to the the insights that that you gain from that connection, from from having basically going from the the personal and the intimate to these how that leads you to conceptualize these big questions and and, and the insights that, that you gain from in terms of understanding these, these these grand questions about the universe yeah i mean process is is complicated because the process for writing the book is very different from the process of of doing the research the process 
of writing the book is meta level because you're reflecting on your thoughts <laughs> and um, and then write and trying to observe and record and and writing really wonderful literary writing is rooted in observation. It's not just the elegance or the stylistic, the way the language is. It's 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 so deeply folded into the clarity of the observations. And so it's a very different process to observe one's thoughts than it is simply to be thinking one's thoughts. <laughs> and uh, so at the level of writing, it was quite expansive to, 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 to impose that meta level, to think about thinking. Um, it changed, it changed. It was as though there were kind of rooms in the mind that I hadn't visited in a long time. <laughs> and um, and I suddenly found myself roaming around. And um, and that was a delightful, strange experience um, doing that. So it was it altered me, I think, in some really intimate ways. Whereas when I'm thinking about science, the nature of my thoughts feels extremely different. I mean, I'm not uh, a neuroscientist and I don't want to blather about some simplistic notion of left brain, right brain, which I'm sure is quite outmoded. But many people have the experience of being it so deep in some kind of technical thinking, or maybe it's artistic thinking, or maybe it's musical. And it is very different. It feels like a different part of the brain. And um, and it's extremely, it's almost like a fugue state. And it's it can be extremely elusive. Which is why I find research uh, isn't something I could just wake up and say, I do this from nine to five. That's just, it's impossible. Some days it's just won't come. And other days it's flooding out at four in the morning. Um, <laughs> so, so you have to kind of chase it when it sparks. And I, I think that element is actually both true for writing and for um, math and, and science research, that you have to chase the spark when you feel it. And you you have to... The thoughts can occur to you at the strangest moments, crossing the street, sitting at the yard sale, taking the train to work. And almost as though when you look a little to the side, when you give yourself a respite away, it it's it's as though it can it can occupy more space, the thoughts. It's that they can wander around a little more freely. And it's it's almost at an unconscious level that you can start to I don't know, get prodded or provoked into following a thread. And all of that's very strange <laughs> and, <laughs> and, wonder, and kind of wonderful, but it still does take the work and the commitment to immerse yourself in that state. It's not as though, um, I forget who it was, that a writer once said, uh, you know, novelist once said, you have, I think it might've been Pullman, um, you have ideas about your book when you're writing your book. <laughs> you, it's, you're gonna, I'm going to go travel the world so that I have all these life experiences and then I'll write my book. It's The, the ideas come while while writing and while experimenting. And so, um, so it's sort of this combination of getting deep into the state and the state of mind and then also being open to the thoughts coming to you when you least expect it. So what are some of the cosmological questions that you're addressing in the book and, 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 and how, you know, do you, you know, you know, that, that process of the, the insights, I mean, how does that, 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 you know, how do you learn about the universe in that respect? I mean, what, what conclusions are you drawing from that experience? Yeah, I, it's there sometimes the questions 
end up being the simplest questions. And that's something I really uh, am amazed by that we have certain ideas and beliefs of things that we know and um, and they're simple to challenge. And when you do challenge them, you're surprised, uh, at least I am, that there is this whole world of unanswered questions. So, so a simple example is I always had been taught about the Big Bang, that idea long predates um, me appearing on this planet. And so I knew about the idea that the universe had a beginning and it was called a Big Bang and that the universe had been expanding ever since. And at no point did I stop and think, well, was it instantaneously, infinitely big? I mean, if space and time themselves are created in the Big Bang, was it instantaneously, infinitely big? And and if so, that seemed very strange and hard to wrap my head around. And so the questions that we ended up pursuing, even though they go deep into very detailed mathematics with very specific calculations about very specific things, they start at the biggest brushstrokes and uh, the biggest picture ideas. And I started to wonder if the universe, like everything in it, isn't also finite. Um, and that that's kind of how it came about. Then, of course, you start to realize that a lot of your colleagues have asked themselves the same questions because even though we kind of take it for granted, it it does start to creep up on anyone working on the origin of the universe and its evolution to ask that question, is the universe infinite? There's a hilarious quote by Einstein, which I, I often use, where he said, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. <laughs> and uh, and then he adds, and I'm not so sure about the universe. So <laughs> questioning these, these basic assumptions, um, right from the from the beginning and um it's a question that we still have not resolved it's in some ways it's so easy to understand why we haven't resolved it given what you write in your book because you show in the various chapters all the different dimensions of it how we're looking at uh you know we're, we're looking at theoretical concepts of space we're collecting this growing amount of data uh, from this increasing exploration that we do using instrumentation, in, using satellites, and, and and through all this, we're we're, we're as we're it, we're absorbing all this data, we're processing all this data, and in some ways, it just opens up new questions and 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 and, and new perspectives that we have to reconcile with the existing data. And that was one of the three, one of the most fascinating aspects of your book was just yeah. the different how you could take you know such a basic question like that and show all the different ways in which we look at it. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, it There are so many different ways of approaching it, which is why there's so much, there's so many different opportunities for, for scientists to look at things in different ways. Um, and, uh, and so you end up having some people looking at the light left over from the Big Bang, which is just a remarkable fact that... Uh, when people began to think about the origin of the universe and they began realizing that the universe was once this incredibly hot, energetic, um, uh, dramatic place primordially and has since been cooling over the past nearly 14 billion years. And then people began to realize, well, where's 
where's that, that cool bath of light left over from the Big Bang, the, the light from the actual uh, explosive event? And they go out with satellites, with telescopes, and they find it. That, to me, is utterly mind-blowing, um, that, that that's successful. So we do have all kinds of experiments to look at the Big Bang, and that's just one of them. So, and that leads to the, the you know your title, which you know, gets to that the, the the personal exploration is also the the scientific exploration. But I, I yeah. get to how what what you have in the text is a book that originated uh, over twenty years ago, and you uh, have you is it, being presented and 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 it's uh for for a new audience for in some respects a new generation and, and i was wondering it, it what it, it might have uh what's changed for you since then hmm. to what yeah, degree is, is your is your life different how's that changed your perspective it's a it's a very interesting question i i um i was surprised when i reread it very carefully and it had been a very very long time i think one of the things that uh people might presume about authors is that they remember their books. <laughs> <They> really... <laughs> I remember the novelist Zadie Smith once said, you know, people would run up to her and start talking to her about characters in her books that she didn't remember. Um, <laughs> and they were so disappointed because they had come to life for them. But it is funny. It's a, it is as though it's written by a different person. It's very much what it felt like. I had some co-mingled memories with this pre-author but but yet had uh, quite a different life um and uh and yet at the same time i didn't feel i i was kind of amazed that i didn't feel as though the book seemed old um it didn't it seemed to me and maybe that's just the nature of the topic because the topic is so epic going back cosmologically 14 billion years talking about the shape of the cosmos. None of those things are transitory and um, they they have a kind of a permanence, uh, which I think keeps the book um, feeling contemporary. So that was very interesting to me. Um, that really surprised me. And even the personal stories, well, they feel pretty universal to me too about relationships and loss and um, struggling to find one's way at that stage in life. It's very typical as people of that age in their 20s and early 30s. And um, so that still felt universal and true and contemporary, which was quite a relief. Um, I think what's changed is obviously I've changed quite a lot. I have two children. Um, I became a professor. I, my work has change direction. I work a lot on black holes. Um, I work on extraspatial dimensions and dark energy and some string theory inspired cosmologies. And that was always going to happen. That's what was meant to happen is that you, I don't like the idea personally of getting stuck in a particular area. You can always return to it if something exciting and new happens, but always being able to move into new terrains and really set up shop and do a deep dive and many papers over many years to, you know, get into a subject like black holes. And um, so I, I'm, I'm obviously sort of, there were so many questions at that age, where will I go? Where will I end up? Will I survive in this field? Uh, will these ideas be forgotten? 
a lot of those questions, I wouldn't say they were answered, but I'm much further along <laughs> in, the, in the process and in knowing the resolution to some of those questions. I, I was struck by uh, a, a metaphor that you used about how, and I, I can't remember if this was if you were quoting this or if, or, or if this is when you were providing yourself about how we we we, we try to think of, of of life as being the uh the smooth path and we just need to get through the ruts and, and you're pointing out and you, you make the point that it's it's there, there is no you know smooth bedrock that we should be burrowing toward it the life is the ruts so we should and we have to ride those and and that's what that's what distinguishes life it's not getting past something it's about Absolutely. coping with the status with, with the status quo yeah, absolutely. I think when people describe privilege, let's say, there's a certain assumption in certain people's worldview that you just, all these things are coming for you. You will have the family, you will have wealth, you will have accomplishment and success. And and there are obviously people who have a very different worldview, who have, who have never believed they would have any of those things. But it also is kind of fatalistic in the writing of that personal narrative, that, that those things will be unattainable. And I think that uh, I very much, in that mix of perspectives, found myself coming to this very liberating conclusion that it is neither, it is not written, we are not guaranteed, owed, nor denied. Um, well, we appreciate the time you've taken to uh, speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Oh, sure. Um, and so, so fun to talk. I really appreciate it. Well, I recently finished a book called Black Hole Survival Guide. And um, <laughs> one of the things, it's, uh, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't, doesn't end well. Uh, but um, one of the uh, experiences I've tried in my four books I've written um, is to take on completely different structures and completely different formats and completely different styles. And that has been uh, really exciting to engage in in each project. So my second book was a novel about mathematicians, Alan Turing, Kurt Gödel. My third book was about uh, this campaign to detect the collision of two black holes, which eventually won the Nobel Prize. But at the time I was writing the book was really hit or miss. And there was all of this kind of drama about the scientists campaign to know and the risks and the failures and the rewards. And then Black Hole Survival Guide is very much just a very lean meditation. It doesn't have the personal narrative. It doesn't have a lot of the historical digressions, but it it is a kind of tongue-in-cheek how-to survival guide. And it's in everything you ever needed to know about black holes and more. It, and it's very consolidated. It's by far my shortest book. I, I spent about a year knocking the book down to about a third of the size of what I had originally written. And that was really fun, how to make something so lean. And um, and so that is still, in some sense, in my heart and mind, lecturing and going around the world and talking about that book, Black Holes, and, um, and the book Survival Guide. And then more recently, I don't know, I'm kind of noodling with the idea of maybe writing another novel. I don't know. I, I to my surprise, discovered several years ago when I had uh, a kind of nascent idea for a new novel, I had written like 150 pages in some kind of, and, I'm, <laughs> and I didn't remember any of it. And I'm, I'm just, I think I'm going to go back 
and um, and uh, see where that's going to take me. Well, those sound like uh, fascinating projects. Uh, is the uh, the the survival guide for black holes uh, coming out uh, this year, or is it next year? The black hole survival guide came out already. It just already out. came out in yeah. So the paperback's just about a year. Oh, wow. Um, maybe not quite. I kind of have lost track. You know, I think we've all have a different sense of time since pandemic. I, you know, years, I don't know, get condensed to months. But I think the paperback was just about a year ago. So, um, and it's uh, it's also neat because it's illustrated by an artist, Leah Halloran, who did over 20 original paintings for the book. So it's really a, a, a little uh, kind of art object as well. Oh wow! It sounds it's like fascinating work. I'll have to seek it out for uh, read it for myself. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you, Jenna, for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks so much, Mark. Till next time.